I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome to episode four of the podcast, which I would say is the most special episode that I've ever had. And I know I say that about every episode, but that's because this is the last episode of the year. I didn't record last week because I was trying to survive finals, and I wrote 60 pages worth of essays, papers, and take-home exams. So I was so exhausted, rather than expend energy I didn't have and make a really terrible episode, I could wait until after the holidays and make this episode for you all. As I said, last episode, I want to begin with the thoughts that have been on my mind as of late. And that has mostly been concerning New Year's resolutions. So I know that New Year's resolutions are something that a lot of people don't take kindly towards because they don't believe that anything really changes when midnight hits and it becomes a new year. But I am not of that mindset at all. I truly believe that marking time is extremely important. And when you mark time, you have the ability to change what's happening around you and to almost alter time by acknowledging that it's there. And so I think that the reason why a lot of people are averse to New Year's resolutions is because they don't really understand what a resolution is. And the thing is, is that resolutions are not things that you're going to fix about yourself or a sort of resolutions are decisions that you're going to make. And I think if more people understood that deciding is something that can be very affirmative and very power inducing for your life, more people would seek to resolve things. And other than making firm decisions, resolutions are problem solving. And they're fixing things that are contentious, things that are inside of you that you have not yet acknowledged or confronted. And you know, the last two episodes have been about self-confrontation, about thinking about the things that truly trouble you, acknowledging them and recognizing them, understanding them as part of a larger journey and a larger vision that you have for your life and yourself. And so I think that For me, my personal resolutions are that I'm going to make a decision to be less anxious in the new year. I don't know why, but there's certain things that just cause panic or anxiety in me. A lot of them obviously, like with most people, have to do with things that I feel I can't control. And a lot of that has to do with running out of time. I don't know why the thought of running out of time constantly causes me anxiety. I don't know what it is about trying to rush through things or do things all at once that makes me feel better because I'm trying to rid myself of the anxiety that patience necessitates. And I think that I really want to look at patience as a good thing and something to internalize rather than a burden because I've always had problems with patients and I think between now and the midpoint of next year at which I have to graduate from college and just receive life-changing answers about my life so much of it will be waiting that I want to internalize the weight and have it be something that brings me peace so I'm deciding on patients this year so before the new year inbox me email me dm me let me know what you're resolving to do let me know what you're deciding on perhaps we can talk about it So with that being said, we're just going to get straight into these questions because that's my favorite part. Dear Viv, so much of identity politics nowadays revolves around victimhood. I won't lie and say I don't subscribe to this, but I'm from a background that is oppressed and does the oppressing too. My question is, how do you handle critiques of your identity with grace? At times I feel like yelling and screaming, not all of us are like that, but I know it doesn't contribute to the conversation. How can I acknowledge my identity carries some privilege without taking it as a personal attack? Well, honestly, I think that the answer to this is not simple, but it's very straightforward. This is the issue with identity politics. 
We look at identity as something that's imposed upon our own character or our own individuality without understanding it as a product of history. You are Indian because your parents and your grandparents and ancestors were in India. Being black is not a set of characteristics or personality traits. It is a product of a collective history of how black persons are treated, cultural characteristics that we maintain. These are not biological entities. So if you understand your identity as a product of history and you understand the oppression that your identity has caused to others as a product of history, then not only can you redeem yourself from feeling personally attacked or feeling as if it is a personal affront to your own individuality, but you can actually use the power of whatever that identity is to redistribute power and meaningful ways that affect systemic oppression because identity is not a set of personal characteristics or vengeances against other races it is truly a product of collective ambitions collective historical decisions state-made decisions and you have to understand how you fit into that rather than feeling like you in and of yourself are a whole world that embodies all of these metaphysical traits of race and ethnicity it's not about taking collective responsibility for your race it's about taking personal responsibility for your own knowledge of history for your own knowledge you don't have a personal responsibility of saying not all of us are like that or even to responding to generalizations and characterizations of your race or your people you have a responsibility to self-educate about the ways that you perpetuate and maintain oppressive systems to self-educate about the history of your people and the ways that they have been oppressed and oppressive to educate about how the current systems maintain your privilege, maintain your social positions and your positions of power so you can seek to dismantle those and learning about the history of others so that you're not so quick to say it's not us because maybe it is you. And to understand that that doesn't say anything about your personality, it just says something about your personal ignorance. And ignorance is not something that is static. It's not something that is a fixture. It's something that can be fixed. It's something that can be fixed, that can be resolved, and that can actually seek to empower people once knowledge is gained. And so I would say seek that knowledge so then you won't have to feel guilty. Because I always say guilt is a cop-out. Guilt is a cop-out for ignorance. You don't have to feel guilty when you can just be educated about it. Dear Viv, I recently moved from my hometown to Atlanta to Miami within two years. I've made some great friends along the way, but we're now super spread out. I miss having a group of girls that would provide support, but we're also down to hang out or go out. What advice do you have for me with dealing with the lack of in-person support and face-to-face interactions? I would say if you really want face-to-face interactions and personal support, you need to venture out into the real world and meet people. Meeting friends is a bit more difficult than meeting men or meeting significant romantic others because there's certain kinds of social cues that you give in romanticism. Flirting is kind of a thing, but there's not really a friendship kind of flirting. I know that I met some of my closest friends just by way of being at school and the thing about school that's easy is that it kind of puts together people who already have certain interests because you pick the same certain classes you live and hang out in the same spaces but the thing about entering the adult world is that those spaces exist but they're just much less obvious so like if you want to meet people who love art and art is an essential part of their life go to museums Go to independent film theaters, go to libraries, because those are the places that people like that hang out. 
So wherever you would naturally hang out, according to your interests, I would say go hang out in those places, but actually talk to people. I think that that's the weirdest thing is that we're often surrounded by people who are like-minded or enjoy the same things just by culture of proximity. But because of this alternate universe that exists on social media, people are much more reluctant to speak to one another in real life if they don't have some kind of prior recognition. And so in that, face value is really equal to zero these days. You can't really get anything just from face value. So you have to be the person to approach people. You have to be the person that says, hey, I like your shoes. Hey, I like your style. Hey, what do you think about this piece of art? And it's honestly as simple as it was in the second grade. And the thing is, is that you'll know very quickly if you mesh with that person or not. Like I've, I've had women that I've gone out with on friendship dates and be like, oh, this is actually not somebody I could see myself being friends with. And then I've had friends that I'm like, oh my God, I want to know this person for the rest of my life. And if you are too afraid to do that, then hit women up on social media and ask them to hang out the same way that you would if you were looking for a romantic partner. One of my best friends, Yasmin, I met on the internet because she was moving to New York. She didn't know anybody and she was pursuing a master's here. And she said, hey, do you want to hang out with me? Do you want to go out, get coffee? We had similar aesthetics on our Instagram. We enjoyed similar things. We would send each other posts about books or about history or about art. And we were like, oh, we'd probably mesh pretty well in real life. And we did. I love her. I love her to death. But the thing is, is that it's going to take a proactiveness that I think that people really don't appreciate because we want the instant gratification and instant knowledge of others that we get with the internet but real life the thing that's satisfying but also deterring about it is that it does take work real friendships take real work and so just know that you're going to have to commit to not only getting to know people but also sustaining friendships and hitting people up and going to actually hang out if you do pursue meaningful friendships and it's so worth it because friendships with women are the only thing that have ever saved my life. And so I would just say, understand that good people will come to you if you're seeking good people. Look for people for the right reasons and you'll find that, I know that you will. Dear Viv, you seem knowledgeable about anything involving music and that you would provide great recommendations. Oh, thank you. What music moves you the most? Is there a certain genre you prefer? Is there any musical artist that you deeply admire? Yes, yes, and yes. I absolutely love music. The genre I prefer is soul by a mile. I absolutely love Aretha Franklin. I love Whitney Houston's classic ballads. I know basically every Stevie Wonder song ever made. I love, love, love Stevie Wonder. I love Al Green. I love The Temptations. I love Denise Williams. I love The Emotions. I love Confunction. But I also love classic R&B, early 2000s and late 90s. I love Jagged Edge. I love Boys to Men. I love early Mariah Carey. Lately, as I've been thinking about my grandfather a lot, I've been getting really, really into jazz, especially because I just took this class where we studied a lot of jazz and a lot of blues. So I love John Coltrane. I love Miles Davis, the classics. I love Chick Corea, Joe Henderson. But as for what music moves me the most, I genuinely think that soul music has always moved me the most. I think that when I hear black women singing soulful music about their lives, I feel like I'm back right there in their lifetime going through the same things. At the same time, I'm in my own parallel world of going through my own shit. And all of a sudden, I enter into this sort of collective hurt and this collective womanhood. I really think that I entered into womanhood through soulful music like Aretha Franklin and like Denise Williams. And I feel like I entered into the world of my mother as a teenager in a lot of ways, and I could feel her hurt. 
and you just feel a part of this thing that I call the big pain, like all the collective hurt and all the people who have ever felt that through all time strung together, but especially black women for me. And I think I enter into that world and it just breaks me down and builds me up at the same time because you feel so so deeply understood on a level that you can't even comprehend because it feels like such an intrinsic understanding and such an intrinsic comforting. When Aretha Franklin in Bridge Over Troubled Water at the end, she starts singing, and if you ever, if you ever need a friend, then just look around and say, and I'll be there like a bridge over troubled water. I break down every time I hear it because I really think, wow, I need a friend. I just start bawling and bawling, and it's not because I'm searching for a friend it's because in the music I found it and I think that soul music is just so primordial it's so bodily in the sense that it's so much about the bass and it's so much about the voice and we feel the bass because the bass is so much like the human heart and we feel the voice because the voice is the human's musical instrument and so in that I feel so moved so deeply moved in a way that I can't even truly be eloquent about Dear Viv, what are your thoughts on Jackson Pollock? So for those of you who don't know who Jackson Pollock is, Jackson Pollock is um, a late 1940s American expressionist painter who basically developed this style of abstract expressionism painting by doing these very, very large scale canvases that he would lay over the floor and stand up above and just spread paint by flicking it everywhere and jumping and moving around. I absolutely love Jackson Pollock. I think that he's one of those people that over time, as identity politics has entered art, has been written off as just some random white man who received way too much credit for his work. But I think that there's something about the labor of Jackson Pollock's work that I've always admired in the sheer sense that you have to move so much to do what he does. And as somebody like me who has a background in modern dance and understands what it means to create art through the movement of the body and being in touch with the body. I think that that was such a big deal, especially because Jackson Pollock comes in in the late 1940s, beginning the industrial era post-World War II, where machines have taken over and people have started sort of mimicking their bodies and lives like machines. And so for his work to have no real logic besides the internal logic of the body, and for him to trust his body to do that work, for him to have used art to overcome the mind rather than as an expression of the mind because Jackson Pollock dealt with depression, dealt with alcoholism. And I think that there's something to be said about artists who use art to overcome the mind because as an artist myself, somebody who is very, very mental, always in my head and can't really find ways to escape it. I think that there's something very admirable for people who are as into their heads to find a way out of their heads through the body. And I think that Jackson Pollock was essential in people understanding that they could do that. And I actually think that it's more impressive that he's a white man because white people are so often stuck in their bodies and so often stuck in that machinistic, mechanical way of being that they have been sort of socialized into over history, that Puritan way 
of doing things. And so for him to get down on the floor, be jumping across a room with a body with a can of paint as someone who was just coming from Wyoming and coming from L.A. and L.A. in the 1940s was nothing glamorous. I respect the hell out of Jackson Pollock. And I wish that more people understood and more white people actually tapped into that tradition. Love Jackson Pollock. Respect Jackson Pollock. Pollock forever. Dear Viv, where did you learn about your vast knowledge on art and art history? Well, I would not necessarily call my knowledge of art and art history vast, maybe compared to the average person, but I learned a lot about art in college. I mean, honestly, even though a lot of people shit on it, Columbia has a core curriculum that requires you to take certain classes, and one of those classes is Masterpieces of Western Art and Humanity, and that class basically takes you through the basics of Western architecture and art foundations. So you learn about Rembrandt, Raphael, Dali, Pollock, Warhol, all of these people from the beginning of Western civilization in Rome to the current modern traditions. And you learn how to speak that language and talk about tone color and talk about bas relief and talk about all of these things that have basically informed the discourse of art and art history. So I would say that's how I learned about quote unquote white art. Um, other than that, I've always had a very deeply intrinsic interest in art. It's something that's always been a part of me. When I was a kid, I would sketch a bunch. And also, when I first entered college, I was an architecture major. I don't know if some of you knew me at that time, but yeah, so I have like a background in Japanese architecture and... But also, even prior to that, my godfather, Tom, is actually a developer of real estate. And so he taught me a lot about art traditions and a lot about architectural traditions, which is why I majored in architecture in the first place. And I also traveled with him to Europe on two separate occasions, to Italy and to Spain, where I learned a lot about Baroque and Romantic architecture and a lot about Renaissance art because I spent a bit of time in Florence. So through travel, through life experience, through my natural curious ass, I learned a lot about art as I know it. And then I know a lot about photography because I just absolutely love photography. Um, I bought every passion book I could afford when I first got to college. I love Jack Gorafolo, Bruce Davidson, Alex Webb, Joseph Rodriguez is my newest favorite, Peter Angelo Simon. So yeah, that's me and art. Dear Viv, what do you think about the Kardashians? Well, that's very simple. I don't think about the Kardashians. I don't really believe in indulging in the kind of consumer culture that they produce, but the Kardashians don't really bother me, to be quite honest, because I understand that individuals like the Kardashians are a product of anti-blackness and capitalism, but they're not the causes of it. They capitalize off of it because the system allows them to do so. And the thing is, is that though they're not innocent in any means, they also are not my biggest issue. I know that the way that they steal off of black women and they capitalize off of black women is an effect. It's not a cause. Like, sure, they prop up this system, but the amount of power that they have is so limited. It's limited to culture, which I think that people give way too much power to, because obviously culture produces societal change, but culture in and of itself is usually a product of systems that are already upheld by much more powerful forces, such as money and state power. And so I'm much more interested in dismantling the things that produce people like the Kardashians and personalities like the Kardashians and 
dismantling cultures of media that prop up, propagate, and perpetuate the Kardashians, then I am interested in learning about and dismantling the power of the Kardashians themselves. And I don't think that they have any style, so I don't really seek them out or look at them because I know that they're supposed to be fashion icons more than anything and sort of invested in fashion but I don't like any of the things that they wear I think that Balmain is so ugly so played I think that Kanye's lines are not nearly the best versions of all of the Japanese designers that he takes from and so I don't often think about the Kardashians dear Viv so you think it is possible to be spiritual even though I do not believe in God What does spirituality mean to you? So let me just start by confronting this whole quote unquote belief in God. I don't personally believe in atheism. And when I say that, I don't mean that I don't believe in the atheist tradition, which is that people don't believe in God. But I don't think that people believing or not believing in God has any actual effect on the existence of God. I think that atheists believe that by not believing in God, they somewhat affect the existence of God. I don't believe that at all. I think that God is an omnipotent, all-powerful being that whether you believe in him or not, whether that you have faith or not, exists constantly throughout all time before time is the controller of the entire universe. So I don't think that your belief has any effect on his existence, but your belief does have an effect on your own existence. Do you need to call God God? No. I don't think so. I think that's because people are at different stages of faith, and I think that it takes time to recognize the ways in which God manifests itself, and a lot of times the path to faith starts with recognizing God in just your everyday life, in love, in kindness, and forgiveness to others, in a natural order in the universe that bends towards justice, in choosing kindness, mercy, and forgiveness over vice, vanity, and evil. I think that if you have a moral order, you have a spirituality, and hopefully at least you towards God. But I don't know what you're calling a spirituality if you don't believe in a spirit. Because the thing is, if you believe that you have a spirit, then you must believe that that spirit has some sort of source or starting point. And if you believe that it has an origin, then whether or not you say and call that thing God, you believe that the starting point of all things have a central fixture that is God. Whether, again, you call it God or not, does not affect the existence of it. But I would say you're already in that point more faithful than you think. And when you ask what does spirituality to me mean, spirituality means a practice of faith. Spirituality means a discipline of faith. The quintessential difference between just believing in a bunch of things and having a spirituality is having a practice of faith, whether that means that you pray, whether that means that you meditate. Some people serve altars. Me, I pray, I fast, I participate in my faith and my discipline of my faith, and I practice it in my everyday morality, and that's how I understand myself as a spiritual person. Dear Viv, do you have any recommendations on how to write a better personal statement? I often write them and then realized that I did not talk about myself or reveal anything about myself at all. Let me tell you something about personal statements. I wrote my personal statement for Columbia in about an hour. It took me an hour because I didn't think of it as a personal statement and I didn't think of it as writing about myself. I actually wrote it about having worked in radio in high school, what it was like to be inside of a recording studio. Because when you're in a recording studio, there's about five feet of a proper recording studio. There's about five feet of brick between you and the outside world. And then there's a layer of foam. And then there's a bunch of other insulation that basically keeps you 
from the outside world. And I talk about in my personal statement how it was that place where I found my voice and I found out who I am because I had been in a world that was so inundated with injustice and the complications of adolescence and the lack of support from parents and poverty and just noise, the pure noise of youth, that I had no place where I could understand my voice as distinct from other people. So it was behind all of that brick, all of that insulation that I found my voice. And so the entire personal statement is about my experience in a recording studio. But in that, it reveals these things about how I grew up. It reveals these things about myself that I couldn't have explained so well had I just said, this is who I am. My name is Bianca. I am this many years old. I work at this place. This is what I want to do when I grow up. I would say focus on experiences that have moved you and those things that move you reveal you. Even if it's something very, very small, focus on that thing and that will be the thing that reveals who you are. So that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to this last episode of the year. I hope that you all are resolving to work on yourselves, resolving to work on the things that pain you, hoping to work on the things that move you and bring you joy. I hope that everybody is eating well, staying warm. At this point, it is literally 12 degrees in New York City. So I'm wishing everybody joy, peace, love, happiness, goodness on earth, time with family, time with loved ones, time with friends. And I'm really hoping that you all send me your resolutions and that we can all come up with a plan to make decisions for this new year, to not remain static fixtures in which things just happen to us and instead become proactive people who are involved in our own lives and decisions that we make about our lives. That is my hope for you and my wish for the world. As always, thank you so much if you made it this far in the episode. I wish you nothing but more love and more life. I'm Bianca Vivion and this is Ask Viv. Now that you're-